what Dante sees people like the lustful and the gluttonous and the greedy are, they just simply say, I don't, you know, I, I, I want these things. And, you know, sort of in your back of your head, I know they're kind of wrong, but I can't be responsible for what I do because I just can't control myself. And Dante wants to say that's the big lie. Welcome to another edition of the Mouse Book Club. My name is David Duane. I'm the president of the club and your guide and your host. I'm super excited about today's conversation. We've got Bill Cook joining us. Professor Cook taught Dante for 40 plus years, primarily at uh, SUNY Genesea, but he's also taught Dante in prisons and in monasteries and in lots of other places. So he brings a really broad understanding, a tremendous depth of expertise, not just about this text, but about this whole period. And on top of all that, he's just a thrilling teacher to listen to. So please enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much, Professor Cook, for joining us. We like to kick off each of these conversations with a simple question, which is, of all the people you could study, why this one? What is it about Dante that really speaks to you? I think the first line of his poem defines why it's so attractive to me. First line is, in the middle of the journey of our life. And it's interesting because it says, our life, not our lives or my life. In other words, what he seems to be saying is, I've got this story to tell you. It's a very personal story. It's about me. It's sort of disguised in the fiction of the narrative, but you know, he's an exile from, a, from, from Florence and so on and so forth. I've got this personal story to tell and everybody's story is different. And yet we can all learn from each other. That is to say the story of my life has some pattern or some insight into the, pa- into the specific events of your life. I've always liked that, but I'll tell you where it came home to me. About 40 years ago, I taught Dante for a couple semesters at a maximum security prison, Attica prison. Those of you who are old enough, which looks like none of you, uh, will know that Attica had the bloodiest prison riot in American history in the 1970s. And so I'm, I'm teaching in Attica, and I've got a third, a third of my students are murderers, a lot of drug dealers and other things, overwhelmingly African-American Latino. And so I don't know how this Dante guy is going to play. I'm used to teaching and I went to, you know, sort of good private liberal arts college and so on and so forth. So I don't know how this is going to go. This is a different crowd. And I guess it was the second class that was teaching uh, the fifth canto of, of Inferno, which is the famous Paolo and Francesca canto. And I'm explaining how, you know, Francesca is blaming everything for what she did, which was to commit adultery for which she was murdered. She's blaming everybody for what she did except herself. She blames the guy. She blames a book. Uh, She blames the person who provided them the book. She got all these people that she blames except herself. And I had one student who was Native American who had murdered somebody. And he put up his hand and said, that's me. That's why I'm here. And I realized that Dante isn't just for, you know, white American or European college students. This is a poem that really has universal meaning and value. And if, if you teach it and introduce it to people who have very different backgrounds than yourself, if you do that effectively and well, everybody's going to become attached to this story in some way. There's, there's some part that all of us 
are going to particularly say that enlightens me about who I am. That helps me understand these things about me I don't quite understand. And I found that one of the most empowering moments of my teaching. And I think probably every year from then to when I retired in 2012, I taught Dante every semester, either in a Western humanities course or in a medieval history course or in a specialized Dante course. If we were to travel back in time to the Florence of Dante's day, what do you think we'd recognize and what do you think we'd find very different and strange? Well, let me let me point out that Dante wrote the entire poem in exile. He was he the poem is set, the fictional date of the poem is 1300. He wrote it between 1308 and 1321. In 1300, the fictional date of the poem, Dante was the big shot in Florence. He held, at least for two months, one of the highest political posts in the city. A year later, he was sent into exile. His faction lost out. And so it's a, it's a poem that in some ways longs for Florence, in some ways is very bitter toward Florence, but Florence is a very big part of who he is, although he, he lived the last 20 years of his life away and never came back even when he probably could have in his later years, he didn't come back. So that's important to say. Florence was a city of about 100,000 people at that time. It was flourishing, it was a merchant city, but it was very badly divided politically. And Dante comes back to that over and over and over again when he condemns it in the Inferno, when he analyzes it, I guess I would say, in the purgatory, and when he himself sort of overcomes it in the Paradiso. Once he sees heaven, heaven's not a place of factions, and that, that being a member of a faction, whether you're the winner or the loser, isn't what life is all about. And so the poem is, in a sense, a kind of fictionalized journey of his experience of exile for the last 20 years of his life. And that's very powerful. And one of the things we learned about those factions, what I think is particularly relevant today is there were no good losers. There were no generous winners. They kick you out, you want to kick them out, was sort of the name of the game. And Dante had to learn that the problem is not the Ghibelline, the party he was not. The problem is not the Guelphs. The problem was him. The problem was factionalism. And that both factions did the same thing and that therefore Florence couldn't be reconciled unless they, unless both factions came to the realization that the problem is not these policies or those policies, the problem is factionalism. I think it's a pretty good lesson, pretty relevant lesson for our day. As we've seen more and more, it's sort of winner take all and you don't talk to the other side. Uh, and, and I don't mean that just in the United States. Uh, we certainly see it in many other countries in the world, European democracies and not so democratic countries in Asia and Africa and South America. But Dante really, really takes that issue up. That, and that, that therefore hell is all about division. And heaven, although it's, it's made into parts, is all about unity. Can you talk a little bit about how the poem was actually produced? You mentioned that it was written over a 13, 14 year span, but... Do we know whether or not he wrote it in sequence, or can you give us any other details? Luckily, he finished it literally just a few weeks before he died, we think, in 1321. Um, it's 100 cantos. Cantos are about 140 lines each, so it's a poem of a little bit more than 14,000 lines. And he did write it 
you know, hell first, and then hell was copied and passed around. So there were people reading Inferno when he was writing Purgatorio and Paradiso. So he did sort of release it, if you will, in, in sections, but he concedes it all from the beginning. And it th there, there are many basic things to say about what kind of poem it is. It's a political poem. It's a religious poem, obviously. It's about what happens to souls when they die. It's also a love story because Dante had, perhaps from afar, a, a girlfriend when he was young in Florence and she died. And he wrote lots of poems about her and published them in a collection of poems called the Vita Nuova, the New Life. But at the end, he says, having written some conventional and very good Italian love poetry, I need to write Beatrice a poem like no love song has ever been composed. And in many ways, that's what the Divine Comedy also is. It really is the ultimate love poem. And he meets up with and Beatrice is with him for a while in his fictional journey through heaven. I'm very curious what the reception was like, because there are some characters in hell who are contemporaries of his, right? That's right. Um, you have to be dead by 1300 to be a character in the poem. So, be, so because it's set in the year 1300. Dante has a couple ways of fudging that, but basically you do. So, so he did not insult anybody who was alive at the time the poem was being written or read. Uh, but obviously he insulted people's fathers and so on and so forth. Um, in general though, the poem was well-received. Um, in fact, very early on, there were two or three line by line commentaries. Think about that. It's one thing to write a review or an essay about a poem. When you write a line-by-line -line commentary of a poem with 14,000 lines, you got to be pretty serious about it. By the way, even, even the popes, who, many of whom are in hell, by the way, even the popes never put the Divine Comedy on the prohibited list of books. It was never on the index. His political treatise was. It was only removed in the 19th century. But the, the Divine Comedy got a sort of almost universal recognition of being a great poem. One of the struggles for Renaissance people, let's say a century, century and a half later is, you know, the, the Renaissance, some of their ideas were, you know, that, that medieval period that preceded us was sort of an age of barbarism and so on and so forth. Well, you can't say that when you've got this divine comedy. So they, they had to sort of make Dante into a kind of pre-Renaissance figure. They couldn't sort of let him alone in his own period. He is, he is, you know, pointing toward the future. So we're reading Cicero and we're reading Virgil and we're reading all these great things. And we're still reading Dante, although we're not reading much Thomas Aquinas or any of that stuff anymore. So Dante's always been a hit. I've got a clarifying question about that title. Dante just called it the Commedia, right? And that Divine was attached to it later. In fact, we had a previous podcast guest who claimed that Boccaccio was responsible for that. Right. It, um, it happens in the 14th century. Was calling it the Divine Comedy just basically a way of honoring the poem? It, it, it might be worth saying to people that, you know, when you hear the word commedia, comedy, you might think it's, you know, going to have some fun in it. Um, and I suppose it does. But the, he's, Dante's using the commedia in the sense that the ancient... Romans would have used the word. That is to say, a comedy is a story that starts out bad and people end up better, as opposed to a tragedy, which is just the opposite. Well, Dante in Canto One starts out in the what he what he himself calls the dark wood of error, 
And in the hundredth canto, that is to say the 33rd canto of Paradiso, he meets God face to face. So it's the ultimate comedy. It really does go from, from worst to best. And then the, the word divine uh, got attached to it again by, one, by a two-generation later Italian writer. Dante lived in Italy after the fall of the Roman Empire, but the legacy of Rome was really important and central to his identity in some real way. Is that fair to say? Of course, Dante would recognize, for example, that he himself was born and raised in a Roman city. Florence was a Roman colony in the first century BC. Now, if you've been to Florence today, you didn't see any ancient ruins like you would if you went to many other cities in Italy. Although a lot of those ruins are still under some of the most important Renaissance buildings. So Dante was himself in, in that sense, a Roman. And it's important to say that. And what he believed was that the, the Roman Empire was perhaps the best time to be alive. Now, one piece of evidence for that is that Jesus was born in the Roman Empire, all right? A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, right? Beginning of Luke's gospel. So he's a Roman in that sense, but also the Roman Empire was spanned three continents, right? It was parts of North Africa, parts of Western Asia, and of course, a lot of Europe. And therefore the Mediterranean, was all in peace. It was a time of peace because there was a universal government in Rome, the Roman Empire. There was a lot of diversity about it, but nevertheless, there was a Roman Empire that was peace. And that's when, because Dante is very theological, that's when God chose to take on human form. Now, admittedly, he didn't do it in Rome. He did it in sort of an odd part of the empire, if you will. But for Dante, that was significant that it was when the world was at peace under a Roman ruler whose empire seemed to be universal, that that's when God chose his one time to become human. So all of that's interwoven for Dante. So for, for Dante, it's not an accident that Augustus, the first emperor, and Jesus coming happened at the same time. For Dante, that's providential. So his, his Christianity and his Romanness are intimately woven together for him. Dante chose to write this poem in Italian rather than Latin. Can you talk about why that was a big deal? Italian was being written by this time. Again, Dante was an Italian poet, wrote a love, love poem. But Dante's really writing what we would call an epic poem. And his model for that is Virgil. In fact, Virgil is his guide through two thirds of the Divine Comedy. He only waves goodbye to Virgil at the end of Purgatory when Beatrice comes to be his final guide. So for the genre that he's writing, that is to say for an epic poem, the language of epic poetry is Latin. We need to remember, first of all, he did not. He knew that Homer existed and he knew the basic plots of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but they weren't available for him to read because they'd not been translated into Latin at this time. And Dante, like everybody else in Western Europe, who even the well-educated, didn't read Greek. So Dante knew about Homer, but he never read Homer. But he did read Virgil. And it's also important to remember that today, if you say Roman epic, people probably say Virgil, and then not many of them could answer the next question, and who else? But there are a lot of Roman epics, some of which involve, some of which exist in part or in whole, and Dante knew that whole tradition. So even though he deliberately, of course, makes Virgil his guide, 
nevertheless, one of the things that Dante realizes is, of course, Latin was the vernacular in the time that Virgil wrote. That is to say, it was a language spoken by the people. It wasn't a learned language. And of course, Dante knew Latin. He knew it well enough to write a book, but he decided he wanted to make this poem into into something different. And he was making a bold thing. People, the, the, the first reaction he would probably expect people saying is, I can't take this seriously. It's not in Latin. He had to be very good to pull this off. And in a sense, he knew it. He, by the way, Dante did not like camp confidence in his own ability. Uh, but Dante knew he was taking on a very tough job because he's not just writing an epic. He's writing it in a language which epics shouldn't be written in, in a sense. And so that was that was kind of a, a gutsy call on Dante's part. And of course, obviously, he pulled it off. Even in the 15th century, though, during the Renaissance and the revival of all the Latin and Greek culture of the ancient world, there were there were Florentines who wrote commentaries on Dante, always praising him, but saying he should have, damn it, written it in Latin. So it took a while for Florence to get over the fact and, and to move beyond the fact that Latin is the proper language for that genre of poetry. Would you mind reading just a small sample of the Italian and giving us a sense of how the poem's constructed? My Italian, uh, let me tell you, I'm not the best pronouncer of Italian. I wish, I'm, I'm not going to sound like Marcello Mostroianni, for those of you who are old enough to remember him as an actor or somebody like that. But let me just read uh, the first few tercets. You, you want to know, it's, it's written in a rhyme scheme called terza rima. So it's written in sets of threes. There are three lines and three lines and three lines. Well, in the first ter terza, the first and third lines rhyme. In the next one, the second line of the first one rhymes with the first and the third of the second one. And then there's this interlocking, so it's A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, and so on, all the way through the poem. Now, you couldn't do this in English. When I would recommend, if you want to get a translation, don't get one that tries to, tries to put it in rhyming poetry, because you just can't do it. When every word essentially ends with a vowel, as Italian does, it's an awful lot easier to rhyme things. So it's, it's this very, very beautiful language. So it... Let, let me tell you what the first words are going to be. In the middle of the journey of my life, I found myself in a dark wood of error. So it sounds, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura, che la diritta via era smarita. Ai quanto a dir qual è cosa dura, esta selva selvaggia aspre forte, che nel pensier nuova la paura. Uh, so there are a lot of vowels, and there are and there are in Italian no diphthongs. If you've got four vowels in a row, you pronounce them all, uh, and that exists more in proper names. So th there, there is you know if you take ou ou or very very often one sound right ooh, but not in Italian. So it's it's very vowely, if you will. Uh, I guess it would contrast well with German, where you hear lots of consonants. Uh, you know, where you seem to seem like I got three or four of them in a row. So it's a, it's this very it's this very flowing language. And again, you know, you've got this this wonderful rhyme scheme that helps to keep it flowing because the sound just links in it and it's it's all just one thing. He does this 
how many times in a hundred cantos in, in 14,000 lines. So it's an extraordinary achievement just to, just to pull off the poetry. Do you have any specific recommendations on translations, uh, back matter, notes, how to approach reading Dante in its full sense? Before I used Durley and Martinez, which is three big volumes, as you can see. I mean, these really are big and heavy. Uh, these are not things you carry uh, on the subway to work. I think that what you want to do is find one that has enough notes because you're not going to know who most of the people are that Dante meets. And of course, for his original audience, he would have expected them to know who characters are. And it'd be, it'd be like saying to, you know, somebody in the United States. Right, like Mitch McConnell or somebody who's highly partisan. I'm not tell you what part of the afterlife he would end up in, but uh, at any rate, I would I would take a look and make sure there are enough notes for that you think you are you are satisfied that you can you know that you want to find out who this guy Dante is talking to or talking to about talking about uh, get a translation that that does that and again there are a dozen what I can do is send you an email tomorrow and I'll list three or four but the other thing I would say is don't be too reliant on the notes and don't lose the poetry and yeah I think I think that is important. One thing also is that almost all the modern translations have a general introduction and then an introduction to each of the three parts. There's an introduction for hell, introduction for purgatory, introductory for, introduction for heaven. I think those are worth reading and they will have diagrams, schemes of the geography, the fictional geography that Dante has created. So I think those things are very useful. But when you read Dante, well, let me just give you an example. What he, what he often does is he talks to one character in a place, whether, again, whether it's in hell or purgatory or heaven, he'll talk to one character, maybe two. And it's sort of good to sort of glance and see who that is if it's somebody you don't know. But then at the end, Dante will get introduced around in this particular part of the afterlife. And he'll say, now, in that tomb over there is so-and-so, or over there crouched down is such-and-such. Such. You don't need to look up all those folks. Uh, that's yeah. what scholars do. That's what historians do. That's what mad people like me do. But uh, it's you, you, you want to read it as story, not as something where every six lines you've got to check a footnote. That, that would be my advice. And again, there are several translations that provide all those things, general introductions, useful notes, diagrams. And I'll send, I'll send that to you tonight or tomorrow and you can circulate it. I'd love to shift now to talking about some of the themes in the poem. Can we talk a little bit about Dante's presentation of ideas of sin and of free will? Well, let me, let me tell you, here's an interesting way to think about what Dante wants you to focus on in the poem. There are a hundred cantos. That means in the middle of purgatory, you've got, if you numbered them consecutively, you've got cantos 50 and 51. That's the center of the divine comedy. So an interesting thing is, what does he talk about? And one of the main topics is free will. Because the system is predicated on the fact that people make choices and that therefore they're responsible for those choices. That's why, you know, the, the uh, none of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson, the comedian, but in his comic skits, you know, whenever he got in trouble, it was the devil made me do it. Okay. The devil doesn't make you do it. Uh, the devil might try to lure you, but we have free will. Otherwise, a, a life of punishment or reward means absolutely nothing. 
So that is that is a premise for Dante. His system is nonsense if you don't believe in free will. And the mo and although he brings up free will often, again, all the way back to the fifth canto, uh, you know, the book made me do it. My 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 lover made me do it. Uh, where that's a discussion of free will, because after all, the souls in hell don't want to talk about free will, because they want to say, "Shucks, this is just some accident that I'm here." or somebody else made me do something that got me here. The people in hell are usually, needless to say, not very well in understanding of who they are. So I think it's, it's important to keep in mind that we will learn more about free will as we move on, although we have to deal with it from the very beginning. And it is, it is a central tenet. It is, of course, a central tenet of Christianity. I mean, in one, another way to read this poem is as a kind of conversion story modeled in a very loose way on the autobiographical conversion story of St. Augustine called the Confessions. Uh, so it is, as, again, the poem is many things, but one is a conversion story. And part of that means understanding what free will is and finding the right guides, since you have free will, you need to be guided. Well, what guides you? Well, here are a couple of choices. Reason, uh, your senses, okay? That's why you've got, you know, the, the, the first sins punished in hell are, are lust and gluttony and just as you would expect. Because if, if you do those things, it's sort of, subjecting reason to desire is the way Dante puts it. That's not the most serious sin, but essentially what Dante sees people like the lustful and the gluttonous and the greedy are, they just simply say, I don't, you know, I, I, I want these things and, you know, sort of in your back of your head, I know they're kind of wrong, but I can't be responsible for what I do because I just can't control myself. And Dante wants to say that's the big lie. And he will hear it in different forms from, again, the gluttonous and the lustful and the, the, the greedy and the, the angry, the folks he meets in the first part of hell, uh, which are sins of incontinence, which are the least, least serious sins, but nevertheless, they get you sent to hell. One of the words he used a minute ago was conversion. In our contemporary world, we tend to think about conversion as going from either having no religion to religion or maybe between, you know, converting from one religion to another. But in Dante's era, the conversion was something that happened within your faith. Conversion, uh, this is the way I think Dante would put it. If we look at the stories of saints, even some of the saints in the New Testament, like St. Paul, the conversion, the conversion is sudden. Right. Bam. He knocks. He's knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And almost every saint like that has a moment of, uh, uh, of a moment of conversion. By the way, you know, the word in Latin means to turn toward. OK, so if a sense, a sense conversion is for a Christian turning away from self and toward God. Okay, That's simply what it means. And, and Augustine has his he's sitting in a garden by himself and he's called to pick up a book and he picks it up and opens to the first page and it says, not in wantonness and lust. And Augustine says, yep, that's me. That's what I've been doing my whole life. I'm, I'm going to go off and be a Christian. So in almost every saint's life, there's a dramatic moment. Uh, 
St. Martin uh, meets a beggar. St. Francis strips himself naked in the main square of Assisi. But if you read that literature more carefully and in a more nuanced way, you find that conversion is a continuous process. There may be some dramatic you know, jumps along the way, like Francis stripping himself naked. But Francis himself would say, you know, but when this really got started when I, by accident, encountered a leper in the forest one day. And then there was that other day, Francis would say, when uh, I was walking around and there was this ruined church and I walk in and there was a cross and I prayed to it and I had a sense that God was calling me to rebuild the church. And all of a sudden, it's not one conversion story. Conversion is sort of a continuing thing. You continue to turn. It isn't that you're you know, this way and then you're this way the next minute. It really is part of a process. So I think one could argue that this, this whole poem is a conversion story. And it doesn't mean at all that he changed religions or forms of Christianity. He was baptized a Catholic. He died a Catholic. And, and so the whole idea of conversion that we sometimes get as a, what was, what was the moment of your conversion? The answer is there, there are many of those moments. There may be some that are more decisive, more dramatic, have more immediate consequences and change of lifestyle. But I think we would say that Dante undergoes a conversion from Canto One when he's lost in a dark wood of error all the way to when he meets God. And there's no one moment in between, although I think there are certain highlights, not one moment where he was this and is now that. It, it's, it just doesn't work that way. Thank you so much, Professor Cook. This is Brian, the editor. Um, it's now time to turn to our members for their questions. Our, next, our first question is from Shaista. You stated earlier that hell is division, heaven is about unity. So I wanted to know, do you think Dante had thoughts on the pursuit of heaven for some as being divisive in itself or more specifically actions taking them the pursuit of virtue or heaven as alienating or divisive? I think Dante would say, because he's very critical of the institutional Catholic church, there are a lot of popes in hell, only two in heaven and one of them, St. Peter. So Dante's very critical of the practices of the church, but I think he would say any genuine conversion is also a movement toward unity. That doesn't mean necessarily likeness. It doesn't mean that he thinks that, you know, people in England have to see things exactly the same way uh, as he does. Uh, he doesn't ever criticize, for example, the Greek Orthodox Church, which is separate from Catholicism at this time. So, you know, but I, I guess I would say that anything Anything you do that is moving you toward God is, a, is, an, is an action toward unity. For him, unity is not kumbaya. But unity is to strive toward truth. And the way you, you are not disrespecting unity if you call out another. It's got to be done for the right reason. If you say, I don't like this guy, or I want to get him off his high horse because I want to get his money or his power or his popularity or whatever, not that. But if you take up that prophetic mantle, if you will, of speaking the truth, we say it today, right? Speak truth to power. That, that may cause certain people to turn away from you or be angry with you or even try to attack you, I suppose. But that's, that is not to be seen in his idea as division. I mean, I, th I think... I think we could draw good examples today in our secular world too. You know, if anybody stands up and 
and speak uh, speaks out about certain controversial issues of the day, somebody's going to say, why are you always dividing us? Dante wouldn't respect that question very much if that person is standing up for truth. And, and so I think that's his way of un understanding that unity isn't just, you know, giving sort of ceremonial hugs. Uh, unity is actually pointing toward the truth. Dante believes in a, an objective reality. There is a truth. And we need to get on board in our own way with our own gift. His gift is, he knows this, politics and poetry. That, that's what he's good at. And he says that all the time. Can you give us a sense of how you teach Dante? And if there are specific sections that really connect to students? It's very interesting. Dante is in purgatory. He's almost all the way up the top. And he gets talking to Virgil just before Virgil leaves. And, you know, Dante at one point says, you know, as I look back, boy, if I ever get to purgatory, I'm going to spend a long time in the Terrace of Pride. But I'm not going to spend any time in the Terrace of Envy. I'm just not an envious person. And in other words, it's not that, it's not that you will necessary, necessarily find the big meanings in every section, but parts are going to talk to you more than others. And by seeing these parts as parts of a whole, you also see where your sin or your virtue fits into a catalog. And that's why when you teach Dante, at least when I teach Dante, one of the first things you do is say to the class on the last day, okay, we get through all the heavens. So now we're, other than talking about the final exam, what do I want to leave them with? Okay, let me tell you, you now have finished reading the Commedia, that is a prerequisite to reading the Commedia. So now go out and read it. Because you don't get so carried away with the plot or who this person is, and you can read it from a, at a different depth the second time. So the, 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 the last assignment is always, okay, now you got to go read it again, because this is the intro. And I think that's true of a lot of great literature, obviously, but I think it particularly is true of Dante, and I think it's probably something Dante consciously is structuring into his poem. Let me tell you one more thing, though, that it's interesting because one of the assignments you sometimes give, especially in a, a kind of a Western Civ course where Dante is only part of the course, and it can be really crazy, but you, you, you want to say, okay, take some contemporary person and find their place in the afterlife. Of course, almost everybody chooses hell. Now, when I started teaching, this will tell you how old I am, the, the, main, the main character was Nixon. You can imagine who it is in this day and age. But it's, if, if, I mean, there are always going to be people who, who sort of abuse the question. But it really is interesting because um, I had a student, one of the students in Attica, who put a, a sort of 30s starlet 1930s starlet uh, among the lustful. And, and, you know, I sort of didn't know what this was all about. And apparently he'd seen a movie with this starlet in it, sort of a, you know, a sexy 30s movie, whatever the hell that means. But he went on to explain his mother was a prostitute and he grew up being the kid in charge of changing the sheets between tricks. And therefore he saw this woman using her skills as an actress to sort of lure men in and to encourage this kind of thing. And that was really hurtful to him. I had another student from the Dominican Republic who came to me and said, 
I want to write about the dictator Trujillo and put him in hell. And he explained to me that his uncle had been tortured by Trujillo and his family had fled to the United States. And so sometimes people will take it not just as, a, oh, I don't like Nixon or whoever it is, but they'll really think about somebody who's affected their lives and really think carefully about what kind of sin it is. Is it a sin of incontinence? Is it a sin of violence? Is it a sin of fraud? Those are the three big categories that Dante uses. And some of the best and most thoughtful papers I ever got, along with some of the worst papers I've ever gotten, have been an answer to that question. You got to put up with a lot of Nixons to get the dictator Trujillo. And for me, that was always worth it. Well, this conversation has been incredibly enlightening. And thank you so much for all of your generosity. Before we go, I want to give you the chance to plug your foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do in your post-teaching life? Sure. It's cleverly called the Bill Cook Foundation, and its website is cleverly the BillCookFoundation.org. And, you know, I decided I wanted to do something important, and I wanted to do something that obviously played to what I cared about, which was education. So we have, I have a foundation that helps children all around the world to go to school. So we've got projects in 30 countries. Uh, I just sent some money to Kenya a couple hours ago, and I was talking to Laos a couple days ago. So we work all over the world. And we, we do everything from build schools and science labs to sponsor individual students. We're working with a lot of special ed students in parts of the world where they get no attention at all. We've got a program in Peru for Down syndrome kids. We've got a program for severely disabled kids in Vietnam. Um, we're going to be working with uh, children who are day laborers making bricks in, in eastern India. So although we do some fairly normal kinds of schools, we, we also try to make sure we define education as small c Catholicly as possible. So uh, I've, got a good found, I've got a good donor base. We raise about a half million dollars a year. I've got a good board. And so um, that's what we do. Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Huge, huge thanks to Bill Cook for that awesome conversation. And we went ahead and gave a small donation on behalf of the club to the Bill Cook Foundation. And we would encourage you to do the same. Just Google Bill Cook Foundation or BillCookFoundation.org. Please remember to stop by MouseBookClub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.